Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. Man, I'm excited to be here. I hope you are too. Get out your Bibles. We are going to be in the book of Hebrews all year long. So we are going to start tonight, and we are going to work our way through a book called Hebrews until May. So buckle up. It's going to take a long time. I'm excited, excited to see how many of you make it all the way through. Um, it's a very, very rich book, and I wish I didn't have to do some of these introductory remarks because I'm ready to go, but I have to, all right? So if you don't know me, my name is Dustin. I'm on staff here at this church, and I get the privilege and honor of you to be a part of this ministry. Um, I just hope you, I hope you take away a lot of things from your time with us and your time in college. But one thing I hope you know is that even if you're thinking, I don't believe what these people believe, I'm not ignorant. Room this size, I know some of you may not know or follow Jesus. We just want you to leave here seeing clearly who he is, seeing him clearly and knowing that he loves you. And we love you. And it's because of his love that we are even able to do that. Um, if you haven't guessed yet, we believe that the local church is how God is working in our city. Um, that is not something we say as a trite, cliche thing. The fact of the matter is, is that if you are a Christian, a follower of Christ, you will not make it if you are not a part of a committed body of believers. You just won't. It's a lot of really important decisions that you're going to make as a college student, um, Maybe one of them was already the best decision ever of just coming to Marshall. That's still a slogan that they use. But you need to know that one of the most important decisions you will make is not what church are you going to go to, but what church are you going to belong to. You need to be served, you need to be serving, and you need to belong to a place so that you might grow. So we're not interested in helping you find community here. We want to equip you to build community so that we might bring glory to God on our campus. And so what in the world are we going to be doing? Um, every, every week we're going to meet, we're going to sing songs, we're going to pray, you're going to hear the word preached, and we're going to fellowship. Um, that's pretty simple, straightforward. If you like tonight, you're going to like next week because it's the same, all right? We believe, we really believe this, that our job is not to figure out new ways to entertain you and flatter you and get you excited about us. We want you to leave here not even remembering our names, but that you might see Jesus clearly. Of course, we want you to get connected to community here. We want you to be discipled, and we will do events, and we will make memories, and we're going to have a lot of fun. But all of that is pointless unless you get the point, that we want you to know and follow and love Jesus Christ. We are not interested in cheering you on as you continue in a Christianity that doesn't result in real life change in your soul and real life impact on the people around you in our city. We are radically focused on bringing God glory in Christ through this ministry. And also, we're really, really glad that you came tonight. Um, I know some of you may have met us over a weird popsicle lemonade this week. See a few of you like, yeah, a few of us, right? You all like that? Some of you just met people that you thought were really nice, or maybe some of you are already thinking, you know, I've kind of grown up in church, and I think that 
maybe I should just give this a try, or maybe you don't even like the name of Jesus, but you're here to wonder what in the world are these people doing. Wherever you are in that, we really, really are glad you're here, and we hope you stick around and get to know people and get to know these people that I love getting to call my family. You need to know that you may think that you brought yourself to Huntington or you made a decision of a bunch of colleges, or if you were like me, one college. I tried one and got here. Not, that was not a brag, just fact. I got, tried one and got here. <laughs> my wife is, was a Jaeger scholar, though, and that is a brag. So just so you know, I'm married up. But you need to know that God was not messing around when all of those little decisions that you made that led you here, that God is working even now. And so you need to know that you actually can live for what you were made for. So Christians in the room, this is an amazing time for you to decide that your faith is actually going to be yours. You're here because you wanted to be. No one made you. Maybe you were forcefully invited, I'm not sure. But non-Christians, we really want you to take stock and face the reality of who God is and who you are before him tonight. So that's who we are. That's what we want to do. Next introductory question I just want to ask is, what are we up against? The reality is this. There's an enemy that hates you. It's an enemy that hates you and does not want you to find joy in God. It wants you to find joy in yourself. And even right now, your flesh, your nature will kick up against this. Even now, maybe you're already done with this gospel talk. And the world, the campus that we love, will do whatever it can to dull you to the reality of God. And I'm not just talking about professors teaching you things that aren't biblical, which probably will happen. I'm talking about the more subtle charming that will happen, that you'll subtly start to think that your life is actually about you, that it's about your personal quest for fulfillment or happiness or whatever. You need to know that God in Christ has purchased salvation. By faith, you can have new life in him. You really can live in victory over the things that hold you back. You really can have your sins forgiven. You can have a renewed mind. You can have true purpose, and you can truly have family found in Christ. So, you're ready to join us. We want you to be a part of this, and it is not because we want to have a big crowd. We believe that God has placed us on this planet, in this place, beside this campus, for a very specific reason, to bring him glory as we make disciples on our campus. And we're really happy that you are at least considering, by your presence tonight, joining us in that. And so, what you don't need right now is a 45-minute pep talk from me. You don't need that. I could conjure up emotions or tell you exciting things. What you need, whether you realize it or not, is for God to speak clearly through his word. And that's what I hope you see tonight. So let's turn our hearts and attention to the book of Hebrews. It's an amazing book. It shows us the depth of our faith from our whole Bibles. We actually don't know who the human author is, but we know that God inspired it. And what is clear is that the audience of this book was in trouble for their faith. What they needed was to be reminded of the deep, rich, powerful, explosive news of Jesus Christ living and dying and rising again so that they might stay faithful in the midst of their battles against their own sin and that they might stay on mission for the sake of the world. That sounds familiar, right? It's exactly what we need tonight. 
So let's look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Should be on the screen if you didn't bring a Bible. Let's read this. I want you to see a portrait of King Jesus tonight. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve the sake of those who inherit salvation? All right, let's look at this. Verse 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to us, or spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. One thing that we have to see in these first two verses is that Jesus Christ is the full and final revelation of God. Because he is God. And this changes everything. See, most people in our country, in our state, even on our campus, are okay with a God such as God and country, or God bless you, or I believe in someone out there. But the fact of the matter is, the point of contention comes with what you believe about Jesus. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. As Christians, we bow down to one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and His Spirit. And clearly in this verse, He has always been revealing Himself to us. In creation, maybe you've noticed this, even non-Christians in the room, in creation, we can see his power and his creative genius. Romans 1 would say that, most, that when people look out at creation, they are aware there is God. And if they're denying it, it's because they're suppressing what is obvious. In our conscience, even if your morality of right and wrong is not in line with the Bible, all of us do have a morality, right? There are things that maybe you think are wrong that I would think are right or vice versa, the fact of the matter is, all of you have things that you think are wrong. Shows there is something to God. So in creation, in our conscience, but most fully and specifically in his word. The 66 books of the Bible, what we see is his special revelation to us for salvation in Christ alone. Here's what you need to understand. God has not left us in the dark about who he is. Please hear this. You do not have to look in yourself for truth. Truth is outside of you. 
Truth is found in God alone. So let's look at these phrases in these verses. First one, it just says long ago. Clearly, this is a reference to the Old Testament times in our Bibles, but it's fair to say that God has been speaking since the very beginning. His words like, let there be light, literally created this universe. So it says long ago, all the way back to creation, at many times and in many ways. So God's been revealing himself, speaking to his creation. He spoke his covenants to his people, to Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, judges, the kings, the prophets. He revealed his decrees, his character, his promises, his blessings, his judgments, warnings, deliverance, assurances, plans, wisdom. He has spoken. And notice, it says that God spoke to our fathers by the prophets You can make a note there that our fathers there is talking about the old covenant patriarchs, people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, by his prophets. They were the mouthpieces of God. And you need to understand, when you hear the word prophet, I think sometimes we think just people who tell the future, right? Like, oh, it's a prophecy, like a, similar like a psychic or something like that. But they were not mainly telling the future, although they were truly able to do that because they knew God. They were mainly revealing the will and the character of God to his people. And it's, maybe this is fair, I'm assuming that most of us in here, maybe none of us in here, are ethnically Jewish. But if you're in Christ, these are your fathers in the faith too. So God has always been speaking to his people in the past. But look at verse 2, it takes a dramatic shift. God has been speaking, he has been revealing himself, but in these last days... He's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. In contrast, he's spoken to us by Jesus. Jesus, the true and better prophet, not just a mouthpiece of God. His mouth was literally the mouth of God in flesh. Um, Anytime you see the word last days, that phrase um, in your Bible, just know that's a biblical shorthand for the time in between Jesus' first and his second coming. And so, this is always a challenge when we see this, to live with urgency and focus now. You need to understand, we are in the last days. Now, don't get all nervous on me and think we're about to whip out a chart and for me to show you, you know, somehow how credit cards or whatever is the mark of the beast. Okay, I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is you need to understand that in between the time of Jesus coming once, dying and rising again, and before he comes back, we are in what the Bible would call last days. The kingdom is already broken in in Christ, but it's not yet in full come with him. And in these last days, we have the Son, the Word made flesh, and he speaks to us by his Spirit through his Word. Literally, the words that are up on that screen, the words that you are holding maybe in your hands or on your phone, given to us by God, his very words. So there's two aspects of the glory of Jesus that you need to see in this, these, this first little bit. Number one, he is the appointed heir of all things. You need to understand that Jesus Christ owns everything. All of it. Another letter in our New Testament, Colossians, would say that everything is for him and through him. And the implications of this are wide-reaching, but for now, I just want you to be in awe. The Jesus that we just sang about, the Jesus that a lot of us in here follow, owns everything the appointed heir of all things. Second reality, he created the world. Not only does he own it, 
He created it. Jesus Christ created the world. Now, obviously, the entirety of the Trinity was involved in creation, but God, we see, created the world through his Son. These two facts alone should set our minds and hearts up to worship. We can know the creator and the heir of the entire universe. And we should not be bored by that. The Bible should say that we should tremble at that. Isaiah 66, 2, one of those prophets, mouthpieces of God, you don't have to turn there, you can see it on the screen, says this, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This reality is part of the reason why we have no interest in entertaining you. The point of gospel ministry is not to keep you distracted with something that is a better alternative than a bad moral path in college. We want you to tremble at his word. We want you to be humble tremblers at the power and majesty of the creator and sustainer God who has spoken to us in Christ. Verse 3 and 4 shows us more angles of the glory of this Jesus. Look at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus Christ is the shining ultimate display of the sum total of all that is perfect and beautiful in God himself. He shows us what God is like. When we watch Jesus in his word, when we see him move among us by his spirit, we are seeing the glory of God. Now yes, seeing a sunset or an ocean or a big mountain, or my favorite body of water, the waterfall. Does that count as a body of water? Anybody confirm that for me? A few head nods, okay. Mostly stairs, that's good. All right. All of those things show us the glory of God. But there is one thing that is a supreme picture of all that God is. And that's when he came to us in his son. And he is glorious. He is holy, he is loving, he is wrathful, he is merciful, he is described as lion, he is described as lamb. All of these juxtapositions, all of these things that seem like paradox are meant to show an excellent beauty that can only be found in one man, and that is Jesus. Look at verse 3, it keeps going. And the exact imprint of his nature. Think about this. When we see Jesus, that is showing us what God is like. You don't have to wonder. It's not up to you. We, got to, we get to see it in his word, in his incarnation, in his obedience, in his love of the outsider, in his mission on earth, in his death, in his resurrection, his exaltation, his intercession, his reign, his return, his kingdom forever. We are seeing what God is like in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And look, this verse keeps getting better somehow. Not only all that, in verse 3 it says, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You understand what this means? That not only did he create it, not only does he inherit it, inherit it, he is upholding it by his word. He's sustaining it right now. The breath in your lungs, gift from God. The planet that we're sitting on right now, gift from God. All of it upheld by the word of this God man. And so in this verse, we get an unfathomably big picture of Jesus Christ. And then I love this, because you'll miss the point if you just sit there in all of that. It takes a turn to show us how that glorious Jesus is aiming his love at us. And what I'm hoping is that this picture of the holiness of God is showing you just how far you fall short. 
the point of seeing a mountain or a waterfall of his glory is not, like, no one goes to the Grand Canyon to think, man, I'm really awesome, <laughs> right? You go there and you feel small. The point of seeing his glory in his word is not to affirm you. It's to humble you. And look at where God's glory is aimed. Look at the rest of verse 3. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So this glorious God steps into human history to make purification for sins. Notice the word after. This has already been done for you. The bottom line is this. Because of our sin, we are impure. By nature and by choice, we have chosen the impurity of life apart from God and disobeyed him. And the just punishment for us is separation and death. We deserve to be away from this God. But he is holy and loving. And those are not opposed, by the way. It's not like he's like deciding which one to be. It is the very essence of his being to be loving. Love is part of his nature. He is love, First John 4 would tell us. And in that holiness, in that holy love, he came to us. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He showed the mercy for sins and the wrath against it on the cross. He rose again to prove that sin and death have been defeated forever. And pardon and purification is offered to all who will come to him by faith. The response? Repent and believe. But the gospel, the gospel life is more than just agreeing that your sins are forgiven. It is walking in new life, a new relationship with Jesus. This is why you need people around you. This is why you should, if you're a follower of Christ, you should have said, yes, I want disciples. Because you need to be pointed and spurred on and held accountable to pursue this life. You really can obey and truly live and have peace and joy. You actually get to have a pure conscience. It's actually possible. All the darkness, all the sin, because of Jesus, forgiven. So Jesus Christ dies and rises again, and then he sits at the right hand of his Father, showing us that the job is finished. There's nothing left to add to your salvation. The work is done, and he sends the Spirit to indwell us, and even now he's interceding for us. There's help and mercy in our time of need. We'll get to that in chapter 4 of Hebrews sometime after Thanksgiving. I don't know. But this Jesus is for you by faith. And if you don't know him, please listen. Don't miss the point of tonight, of your life, of what God is doing in Christ. That, no matter what you walked in here with, no matter how dark your thoughts, no matter how shameful your past, no matter how much you've already screwed it up, maybe you were like, college, I'm starting over, I'm setting a new path for myself. Even if you've messed it up that bad, you need to know Jesus Christ is sitting down right now. The job's done. He's paid for every single one of those sins. And you can come to him by faith. And we see at the end of verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is ex more excellent than theirs. We see in this verse that one of the main points of this chapter is to show us that Jesus is better than angels. He's not another spiritual being. He is God. And so what's coming in the rest of these verses are a bunch of 
verses from the Old Testament that the author of Hebrews is going to use to paint a portrait for us of our king. So let's look. He starts his argument in verse 5. It says this, For to which of the angels did God ever say, and then quote, you see that in the Bible, should be up there. See those quotes? He's quoting from the Old Testament. So, for which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And this is a biblical, rhetorical question, because the obvious answer is, none of them. He's making a point. So in this question, what you are supposed to see is that Jesus, it is said of him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. God says to Jesus Christ, you are my son. And when he says begotten, he's not saying that Jesus was created. It's showing the uniqueness of their relationship. And so clearly what we need to see as the people of God is that Jesus Christ is God's son. I'm begging you, fight gospel boredom right now. Especially for you Christians in the room, I want you to think about the realities that we are talking about. We know God's son. This is not something that we can afford to spiritually yawn at in our souls. This changes everything for you. This particular angle of the word is showing us that Jesus is God's son. The quote is coming from Psalm 2. So Psalm 2-7 says this, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so he quotes this verse from Psalm 2 to make a point about Jesus. Now the rest of this psalm shows us even more of what Jesus is like. The Psalm 2 king is the one who literally laughs at earthly attempts to take his throne. The Psalm 2 king sits on a throne of no rivals. The Psalm 2 king will inherit the nations as his own. The Psalm 2 king will break whoever tries to go against him. And the Psalm 2 king will bless all who take refuge in him. Hebrews keeps going. It says, or again... I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So he puts more emphasis on Jesus being God's son by not quoting Psalm 2. Instead, he quotes 2 Samuel 7. You should write that down in your journal. 2 Samuel 7 is a huge, important chapter in our Bibles. It's where God makes a covenant with David, King David. And what this author is showing us is that that covenant in King David was meant to point us to the future true and better David, who is Jesus It's applied directly to him. Jesus Christ is the final king for God's people on a throne that will never end. So the Psalm 2 king in all of his glory sits on a throne that will never end, and that's the kingdom that we get to be a part of. You're searching for purpose? There it is. A kingdom that doesn't end. All of our other little earthly pursuits, your careers, your major, your job, your plans, your future, all of it over one day. And I love you enough to tell you that. I don't know all of you. Maybe that weirded you out to tell you I love you. I'm going to say that a lot, so just kind of take it and apply it however you're comfortable with. But you need to understand, this kingdom lasts forever. And so the people who follow this king were a part of something that never, ever, ever ends. Verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So bringing little baby Jesus If you remember, know the Christmas story, the angels worshiping him. When Jesus Christ comes into the world, once again, firstborn is not saying that he was created. It's showing his title. And what would happen? The angels worship. He is truly God, and he is better than the angels because he is worshiped by them. Verse 7 through 9, he continues his Old Testament references. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. 
Now, he's shown a lot in this passage so far of what he hasn't said to his angels. And here we see what he has said. And he quotes from Psalm 104. And Psalm 104 is a psalm that is celebrating the glorious wisdom of creation. And then right in there, nestled in there, we see that he makes angels. What's the point? Angels are created. Jesus is not. He is better than the angels. And look how he contrasts that reality with something he says of the Son in Psalm 45. Look at verse 8. But of the Son, he says. So in verse 7, it's of the angels, he says, I made you. Verse 8, of the Son, he says, your throne, O God is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Another reminder that the Psalm 2, 2 Samuel 7, and now Psalm 45 king is going to be ruling forever. And notice what kind of rule it is. It's a rule of uprightness and justice and perfect peace. You want an end to all the chaos in our world? Only comes in Christ. Only justice found in Jesus. Look at verse 9. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, saying this about Jesus. Great reminder for us that part of Jesus' work on the cross is not just giving you a big spiritual high five and saying your sins don't matter. He was bloody and died to take the wrath that those sins deserved. He hates wickedness. He is holy, which means he loves what is good, hates what is evil. But look at verse, the rest of verse 9. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Because of King Jesus' obedience, we see that God has anointed him with gladness. This type of resurrection joy is fit for a king who conquered death. And it's also the joy that is shared with all who follow this king in that kingdom. Do you realize it's a mark of our kingdom? If you follow this Jesus, we're marked by resurrection joy. And resurrection joy is more, more than just contingent upon your circumstances. It means in the face of suffering, you can be joyful. In the face of limping with more sin or in your fight against sin, you can be joyful. Don't you just love Hebrews giving us this portrait? It's like taking all these psalms and showing us, guys, remember, in your struggle, in your mission of what you're called to do, remember how beautiful our King is. We're meant to adore him. We're meant to worship. 10 and 12, more, more Old Testament pictures here. We see more of God the Father praising and celebrating his king son. Look at verse 10. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. This comes from Psalm 102, 25 through 27. And so what do we see here? The Psalm 102 king has been around since the beginning. He laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are his work. But all of creation, as glorious as it is, will go away. And Jesus will return to remake everything. The picture of our king, put, this picture shows us that he will put an end to all that is cursing us on this world. It's the end to the work that Jesus started in his death and resurrection. He's not only Savior. He's not only Sustainer. He's not only Savior and Creator. He is a remaker of earth. Creation will not last forever. Jesus is coming back and his reign will never, ever end. That's the Psalm 102 King. And then verse 13 gives us one more angle, one more angel-based rhetorical question to show us more about Jesus. 
He says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Not only does he remake creation, he puts an end to all of his and our enemies. He gets this from Psalm 110. And so what do we see about the Psalm 110 king? He ends the enemies of God. The kingdom of Jesus Christ has no rivals, no threats, and no end. And then finally, in verse 14, we see the point of angels. <laughs> it's like, finally, we keep hearing what they're not. He asks another question. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels are sent by God to serve those of us who inherit salvation in Christ. The salvation purchased for us by King Jesus. We are saved and sent into the world as a part of that kingdom, letting everyone know that our king has won. And so, we got to ask ourselves, what in the world does that have to do with season six of Campus Collective, this group of people, this year? I think it's fair to say that you should see the glory of the king. You need to see the salvation brought and purchased by King Jesus. The Psalm 2 king will crush his enemies, but you need to realize that you are his enemy because of your sin. And you also need to realize that that same king got crushed for you. The second Samuel 7 king will have no rivals. But you need to understand that you are, in a very false, weak sense, a rival of his throne if you continue in your rebellion. But you need to understand that that same Jesus that has no rivals will redeem the rebellious rivals of his throne because he has died and rose again. The Psalm 45 king hates wickedness so you were on the wrong side of his rule unless you turn and believe in his salvation and take his joy. And the Psalm 110 king will make an end to all of his enemies at the end of time. But he made an end to the sin of his enemies who will come to him by faith. So what's the portrait of King Jesus? Band, I think this might be a good time. I'm not sure. What's the portrait we're supposed to see? How do we not miss the point to make sure that Hebrews 1 gets deep in you, so deep that it doesn't just stay as intellectual things that you know, but it changes the way that you live, it changes the way you build community, it changes the way that you are a student, it changes the way you look at your four, five, six years on campus and in this city. You need to see that King Jesus, based on Hebrews 1, is the Word of God, that He is the heir of all things, that He's the creator of the world, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of His nature the universe holder, the sin purifier, the right-hand ruler of God, the begotten son, the king of angels, the forever throne holder, the upright ruler, the joyful leader, the one before all things, the enemy defeater, the angel sender, and the final salvation inheritance. And at the end of the day, you need to understand that one king or queen will have your heart. Either yourself will be on the throne or your savior will be on the throne. And you can buck up against it all you want or... By faith, you can surrender yourself to the king who loves and lived and died and rose again so that you might be a part of that kingdom. And so what should we do tonight? We should bow and worship, and you should leave here ready to live in holy boldness knowing that you cannot lose and the kingdom that we're a little tiny outpost of here tonight will never, ever end. Let's stand and sing.